So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated named Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come with us without delay. So Peter rose and went to them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body. He said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in, in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Try that again. Good morning. Good morning. All right, we have to do it over and over. He is risen. That was actually weak. Let's try it again. He is risen. That's, bring it to Irwin. Yeah, Irwin, bring it. You know what? I tell you what, we have a lot to celebrate as a church, right? Amen. And uh, thank you for that Bible reading, that story reading, Eden, and that song. I tell you what, that was an amazing song. And uh, yes, I have some pride in my son, but even if he wasn't my son, that was just amazing. Well, I want to tell you about two guys that have had a lot of impact in my life when it comes to hunting. And those two guys are Bruce Galetta and Craig Davidson. And I have often told the story about Craig and Bruce on Easter morning as I began a sermon. If you've been here for a long time, you probably have heard a couple of them. I haven't told you one in a while, but I'll tell you this one. Craig and Bruce told me about a time that they both got bear tags and they said, you know what, let's go hunting together. And so they did. They got up really early in the morning, and they headed up to Dingman Ferry Falls area north of here to the state game land. It was early in the morning. It was probably now about 5 o'clock when they got up there, just starting to come light. And they're, they're up there off of that road, and they turn on to one of the state roads. And they're driving for a little bit when all of a sudden the road forked. And not really being that familiar with that road system, they saw a sign that said, bear left. So they looked at each other, they shrugged, and they turned around and went home. Now, some of you are going to get that in about 20 minutes. And that's actually the purpose for me telling you that silly little story that's not even true. It's about signs. It's about signs. And when you come to the Bible... And you read about a sign in the Bible, and I'll explain what that is. A sign in the Bible is something that points to a spiritual reality greater than itself. So the crossing of the Red Sea, that was a sign. 
All of these miracles, all these wonders in the Bible, they are signs, and they point to something greater than itself, and sometimes you don't see them for a while. And sometimes you'll be reading your Bible when all of a sudden God will open up your mind and you will understand what that thing there was really pointing to. And once again, you are just amazed at how awesome the living and active Word of God is. Well, we're about to see two signs. We only just read one of them, but we're going to see two of them. We're going to see the sign of a healing of a paralyzed man and then the raising of a dead woman. Both of them are going to show us a spiritual truth that we must not miss. Now, here's where the whole sermon is pointing to. You ready? you got to look on the screen. Jesus came into this world to redeem and restore a sin-cursed creation. This whole Bible, this whole Bible speaks to that one statement. If you know that one statement, and that is the lens through which you read the Bible, it will all snap into focus like that. Jesus came into this world to redeem and restore it to bring his glory. That's the whole entire scriptures in one statement. And there's coming a day when believers will be resurrected to life, where sin and all of the effects of sin will be forever gone. There won't be any more death. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pandemics. Nothing like that will ever occur again. It will be perfection. And these two signs that we're about to look at, they are miracles. And they're going to show us that that reality, what is coming one day in the resurrection when we are brought to glory, that reality can be glimpsed even now on earth. Why? Because our resurrected Savior is redeeming and restoring this broken world. All right, I hope you have your Bibles. That was just introduction, so you got to get your Bibles. If you, I'm just going to bank on a lot of you probably didn't bring your Bible. You know, you're busy dressing up your children. They look beautiful. They look absolutely stunning. You forgot your Bible. So that's why I'm putting the Bible up on the screen today. If you have your Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 9. And while you're doing that, let me address the online church. Listen, you've got to get your Bibles open. I know you're watching this, and I can't see if you are. I can see everybody here, but I can't see you. So can you get your Bibles open, get off of your lazy boy recliner, put your coffee down, and go get your Bible, and then come on back. Acts chapter 9. And we're actually going to start earlier before Caleb began to read in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a, a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So here's what's happening. Peter goes on an itinerant 
preaching circuit. He's actually just following the evangelist Philip. And he's preaching his way up along the Mediterranean coast, north and west of Jerusalem. And he's there in Lydda when he discovers and he meets a man named Aeneas. And the guy has been paralyzed for eight years. So here's what we all have to do. Now, children, you could do this too. It's really helpful when you're listening to a sermon to actually imagine you're the one in the story. You have an imagination. I have an imagination. You can imagine it when your imagination stays with the scripture text. Go ahead and imagine it. So imagine you're the one that's paralyzed and you've been paralyzed for eight years. That means you can't move either from your waist down or from your neck down. We don't know if he's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, but we do know he's a paralytic. And he's been that way for eight years, and Peter heals him in the name of Jesus. And parents, I want all of you to note, because now you can quote scripture when you say it. He told him to make his bed. See, isn't that good news? And what we see is a picture of life and purpose that came to a man who just moments before had neither of them. He had no life. He had no purpose. One moment he is helplessly lying in his bed. He has an incurable condition. The next immediately he arose and he had life. He's not powerless. He's not feeble. He's not paralyzed. Now, you know what we're trying to do, children and adults. We're all trying to get into the story. So let me tell you a little bit more about what it would be like to be a paralyzed man in that day, a, they did, that, that day and age. They didn't have wheelchairs. You know what they had? They had mats or stretchers or beds. They were all the same thing. And they were able to be carried. They had an, a handle on all four corners of it. And they lived, they were dependent on their friends and family. And guess what? They went to work every day. You know where they went to work? They went to the gates of the city because it's at the gates that they would beg for anybody to give them money. That was their life every single day. That's what it was like being a paralyzed person in biblical days. You see, now we look at the sign. You remember what a sign is? It points to a spiritual reality that is greater than itself. So when you see paralysis in the Bible, it is a sign that is showing us the reality, listen, of the debilitating power of sin. And it renders every single human being powerless. They cannot satisfy a sinless, holy God. That's the sign. Now, you might be arguing with, uh, with me right now because you might think, well, I know some really good people that aren't believers, right? You know some really kind and caring school teachers, and you probably know some very fair and very conscientious police officers, and you know some really very integrity-prone, honest businessmen and women, right? So you know all of these good people. You know moral people. And a lot of them aren't believers. So they're good. And here's Pastor Tim saying there aren't any good people. Well, here's what you need to do because here's what we all do. 
we tend to measure our morality. Now listen, we all do it. We measure our goodness by comparing ourselves to other people. I'm not as bad as that person over there. Listen to the Pharisee do it in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He's praying. I'm not like extortioners or the unjust or adulterers. And now he begins to point while he prays. I'm not even like this tax collector. Do you see what the Pharisee's doing? He's feeling pretty righteous. He's feeling pretty moral. He's feeling pretty good. How's he doing it? He's comparing his life to somebody that is less moral and less good than him. And that's what we all tend to do. But here's what the Bible forces us to do. It makes us go vertical. And Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. That's the evaluative standard. So if you're going to compare yourself to anybody to see how moral you are, you've got to go upward to God. And when you compare yourself to our holy God, suddenly you don't really look that good. In fact, you quickly realize just how helpless you are. Your soul is paralyzed. You know, it's kind of like being in art class, isn't it? The art teacher gives you an assignment. You have 30 minutes to draw what's on her desk. And everybody in the class does it. And if you were like me, when I had to do it in art class, I'm drawing and I'm giving it my best. But I'm sneaking glances at everybody else around me, how their drawing looks. And sometimes I started to feel pretty Good. And at the end of that 30 minutes, all of a sudden, it's show and tell. One person at a time goes up, turns around, and shows the class what they drew. And just before you go and you're feeling really good about your drawing, the world's next Michelangelo goes. And you don't even want to go now. You see, that's what happens when we turn upward and we look at God and we evaluate our goodness compared to God's perfection, we just don't look good. And friends, that's the gospel. We are morally paralyzed. We cannot clean up our spiritual selves. We're glaringly, in fact, glaringly immoral compared to God. And we have no power to change that reality. But what did I say the mission of Jesus was, right? Is to come into this world to redeem and restore this sin-broken, sin-cursed creation. And he's doing it by the two greatest signs in human history. The cross and the tomb. The cross and the tomb. See, in his death... He made the deposit to pay for our sins. And his resurrection, he was the first of all who would be raised. And anybody who trusts in him for their salvation will have right standing with God. You see, this is what Romans 4, 24 says, is that he died on the cross to pay for our sins. But listen, he was raised from that tomb to make us right with his father. That's the power of the resurrection. This is how he's redeeming and restoring sin-cursed creation. Because from the moment you trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, here's what the Bible says. You died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, listen, that same power is going to help you live new lives. 
Jesus died to set us free from the paralyzing power of sin. He rose from death to give us new life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now look at verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Rise and live free. See, that, that's the sign for the helpless. But what I'm about to tell you, what Caleb read earlier, is now the sign for the hopeless. The sign for the hopeless. So here, you got to get the drama. Peter's, Peter is holding out his hand, and he's raising Aeneas up from that mat. Meanwhile, an urgent messenger comes to him and says, Peter, you got to hurry up and come, because beloved Tabitha, that's her Aramaic name. Dorcas is her Greek name. Tabitha, who has served widow after widow after widow, has died. We need you to come in haste and do something about this. You know what her friends had done? Her friends had washed, look at the Bible, her friends had washed her body. And later in an upper room, you know what the Jewish people normally would have done? See, she's, her town is 10 to 12 miles away from Lydda, where Aeneas lived. And normally what they would have done is that they would have taken her body, washed it with water, and then rubbed a spiced resin all over her body and laid her in the tomb because the Jewish law was you had to be buried the same day you die. And then it would be a day or a two later that they would go back and they would take all these strips of linen that had been soaked in this spiced resin and they would wrap her body, they would put her back into the tomb and then they would seal it and that would be her burial. That's not what they did. Listen, look at me, they did this. They washed her body and then they put her up in the upper room. You know, that's a dining room. That's where they ate. That was a guest bedroom. That's not really a place. That's a morgue. So they're expecting something. They're so full of hope. And here comes Peter. Now, how many of you saw the movie Prince's Bride? Come on, raise your hand proudly. You're among the redeemed. If you saw the movie Prince's Bride, you'll remember Billy Crystal's character, Max who says of Wesley, who was thought to be dead, and I'm quoting him, he's only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. That's what Max said. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Tabitha was fully dead. She was not mostly dead. And for her to live again, well, Max said it right. It would take a miracle. And here comes the miracle. Peter has no power in himself. Tabitha can't raise herself, so what's he do? Look at verse 40. He knelt down and prayed. He knew the one who had the power. So he prayed to God for help. In verse 40, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now, how would you react to this? She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. 
This is a sign. It's pointing to a greater spiritual reality. Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. He defeated death for all people. The grave will never keep a Christian down. And you may not rise to life in this earth, this life. You will rise to life when Jesus comes back. Why? Because death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The one, Jesus, who overcame death, who was risen from the dead, has overcome death for his people. There is resurrection hope for every single person who trusts in Jesus. That's why Paul said Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what it means to, have, to be first fruits? I'm from central New York. We're an agricultural town, and our farmers had three cuts of hay a year. And the first cut of hay was always the best. It was the first fruits. Jesus is the best. He is the first fruits who would come from the grave. But there's a lot of people to follow. She opened her eyes, verse 40, when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Presented her alive. And it reminds us again, what's the mission of Jesus? He came to this world to redeem and restore this sin-broken and cursed creation. He's the author of life. It's why he declared, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But sin brings death. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something you need to remember. You ready? The good news of the gospel is so good because the bad news is so bad. Every one of us, just level the playing field. I'm the same as you. We have all sinned. And friends, not one single parent had to ever teach you how to sin. It was on board your natural inclination. You just knew how. And the moment that you sinned, just what God said to Adam and Eve is as true for you and me as it was then. The day in which you eat of it, you shall die. The moment that you sin, you shall die. It is a spiritual death. And that death means that you are no longer in fellowship. You never were from birth in fellowship with God. Something has to save you, but what will? Well, here's what the gospel says. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you something. The moment that Jesus came out of that grave, the moment he came out of that grave, he gave hope to every single sinner who would ever turn to Christ in faith. And the very life that Jesus had is the very life that you will have. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't know your answer. I don't know how you would answer this question. So I'm just going to ask you to be utterly honest with me for a moment. Have you come alive in Christ? Now listen, don't tell me that you've been going to church for decades, because that's not your answer. Have you come to life in Christ? You know what happened yesterday? I'm up north of here, and I'm sitting across the desk from a salesman. 
and I'm putting my signature on the paperwork. And I've known him for a decade, and I know he's not a believer. And he looked at me, and he said, what's your church? He knows I'm a pastor. What's your church doing tomorrow for Resurrection Day, for Easter, he called it. And I said, well, we've got five services. I said, are you going to church? He says, yeah, I'm going to church. What church do you go to? I go to a Lutheran church, but I grew up Catholic. I said, well, do the pastors tell you about the gospel? Do they tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ? He looks at me and goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, let me just ask you this question. If you die, and when you die, because we're all going to die, and he knows that, I know that. He had a heart attack recently. When you die, what are you hoping will be the reason that God lets you into heaven? And he says, you know, I, I do believe, and I try to live my life very well. I try to be fair with everybody. I try to be conscientious. I said, so let me ask you this. You believe that there is a God, and you're hoping that your good works will get you into heaven. He goes, yes. I said, that's never going to work. Because Jesus plus good works won't equal salvation. It's either Jesus alone or Jesus not at all. I said, what do you do with this verse? And I opened up my Bible. I had it on my phone app. And I read him this passage that I'm going to read to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I said to him, what are you going to do with that? What does that actually mean to you? He goes, you know what? I've never seen that before. And he goes, I can't believe you're talking to me about this because yesterday my wife and I were just talking about we've got to get back to church. We've got to get reading the Bible, and we've got to read the Bible to our kids. And I said, I think that's a very good thing. Do you know where your Bible is? He goes, I didn't know where it was until this morning. I woke up this morning thinking, where's my Bible? I got out of bed, and my foot stepped on it. He says, I don't even know how it got there. I said, I think I do. I think God put it there. I don't know if he did or not, but I think God helped you find your Bible because he's inviting you to know him. And friends, that might be you right now. You might be hearing this sermon online or in here, and you'll know if God is inviting you. You'll feel uncomfortable. You'll feel a little burning deep inside here. You'll start wrestling with it and trying to outmaneuver it and rationalize it and justify it. I know. I've done all of that. And if that's happening in you right now, I'm telling you what's going on. It is the Spirit of God pulling you to him. Because he came into this world to redeem and restore sin-paralyzed dead people. And you may be the very one that he's talking to you right now. And here's what's going to happen. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And if you will put your trust in Jesus the risen Savior, he will reach out his hand to you and he will say to your soul, arise and live. Those are the words he will speak into your heart. But how does that happen? Well, here's what I'm going to tell you as I close. There is no magic prayer. There is no formula that the Bible gives you. You pray this way, and you're going to be a Christian. You pray this way, and God will save you and give you life and give you life eternally. There is nothing like that in the Bible. Here's what it is. 
Do you realize you're a sinner? Because you compared yourself vertically to God and you all of a sudden don't look very good. And do you realize that because of that sin, you are spiritually dead? And do you realize that with that spiritual death like Tabitha, you cannot fix your situation. You cannot outperform it with good works. You are in a plight and a condition of inability to save yourself. But God knows it and he sent his son to come in and redeem and restore your sin-cursed life. Will you just say to God, I am a sinner. I cannot fix it. But I believe you can. And I will put my faith and my trust in you. Please save me. If you say any kind of words like that, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. He will figuratively reach down his hand and he will tell you to get off of that mat and live. Get off of that deathbed and live. Arise and live. I'm giving you life forever. That can be yours. Father, thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the promises that we have that come into focus on days like this. And Lord, I don't know everybody who is here. I don't know where they are spiritually. Father, I do not know if all are saved, but I would imagine some aren't. And Father, I'm asking that you would work in their lives, Father, that the Spirit of God will draw them so clearly that they cannot maneuver away from you. And they would just simply call out for salvation. Lord, you will save. That's your promise. Because you are a good God. Thank you for Jesus who died. Thank you for Jesus who rose again. Thank you that he is the first fruits of very many. And in his name we pray, amen.